Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you. My name is Lee Hansen, and I serve here as the Director of Student Ministries. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, if you saw that picture of what the original CPC looked like, it, it kind of gave me goosebumps. Just this last week, we did our annual review. So once a year, we kind of look at all that God has done just in our Student Ministries department. And mine was nine pages long. Pretty fun to think. And I, and I look at that little building, and I look at the building that we are in now, and I think about all that God has done between then and now to get us to this place, and it's pretty miraculous. And a lot of you got to be a part of it, so pretty cool. Well, if I were to tell you two of my favorite people in the Bible, it would have to be Peter and King David. And I've studied their lives at great length, and I'm really drawn to these stories for a lot of different reasons. I I love King David's Psalms. He he wrote many uh, of the Psalms that we find in the Bible, and I love his honesty and uh, all the emotions he experienced and the way that he was just able to process those things with God. And I love Peter. Peter's kind of the shoot, ready, aim type of a guy. Reminds me a lot of myself. Not a lot of brain, but a lot of passion. And these men had a a lot of godly attributes and things that I want to be a part of my life. But then as I think about it more, these guys did a lot of really stupid stuff. And as I peeled back those layers of why I'm drawn to these stories, yes, I'm drawn to them for their godly attributes, but But I think at the heart of it too, I'm drawn to these stories because these guys make me feel pretty good about myself. Right, like think about King David. There's this man after God's own heart and yet he committed adultery. And then to cover up his affair, he had the guy murdered. Or Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, denied that he ever even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three different times. And I read about their story and I think, well, sure, my eyes might wander from time to time or I let my thoughts go to places that they shouldn't, but I've never had an affair. And sure, I might have let a choice swear word slip off my lips or told a little white lie, but I've I've never denied that I know Jesus. One of my favorite commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, says this. He says, we are strangely, perhaps perversely fascinated by weaknesses in prominent people. Peter the Great was fearless of assassins, but petrified by cockroaches. We lesser mortals receive secret comfort from seeing a point of weakness in a man of fabled strength. We lesser mortals receive secret comfort from seeing a point of weakness in a man of fabled strength. And you know, we're in a story of 1st and 2nd Kings. And I get to talk about a story that I've always been drawn to, I think for a lot of the reasons that I mentioned before, where we find Elijah, one of God's most celebrated and talked about prophets, at at maybe not what appears to be his most shining moment in history. And I think about this story I'm going to share and about the stories of Peter and and David and other men and women in the Bible that, that we get to see them at their worst. And I wonder, why would God include those stories in the Bible? And I have to believe that God doesn't tell us these stories to make us feel better about ourselves. I believe instead he uses them as an opportunity to teach us right living and to reveal his character in the midst of our sin and our failure. God doesn't tell these stories to make us feel better about ourselves. Instead he uses them as an opportunity to teach us right living and to reveal his character despite our failures. So getting ready for the summer, I got to choose this text almost two months ago, and, and I was thinking it was going to be one of those texts that I was going to read and study and feel good about myself and, and tell you all the reasons why. Well, I was so wrong, I feel way worse about myself, and I will tell you those reasons. So the story goes in 1 Kings chapter 19. 
Verse nine, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here? Elijah. It's interesting, as Carrie mentioned in the children's sermon, just the last chapter, as we look at the broader story of what came before this text, we find Elijah, one of God's most celebrated, brave, courageous prophets, witnessing one of God's most amazing miracles, where he literally called down fire from heaven. You see, Elijah had, uh, had encountered these people, these Israelites, God's chosen people that had kind of turned their backs on God. And they were worshiping other gods. And so Elijah essentially says to all these people, 450 prophets, it says, he says, let's let's create a scenario and and you make a sacrifice to your God and I'll make a sacrifice to my God. And let's call upon our gods and whoever rains down fire, let that God be the one true God. Well, I bet you can guess what happens. They set up their sacrifices and it says these 450 prophets, they scream and they wail and they call out all day long. Elijah gives them all day long no fire. And Elijah calls upon the Lord and the Lord sends down fire and consumes the sacrifice. And Elijah proves that God is the one true God to all these people. And even in the midst of this scene, we see Elijah's heart. This is what he says. He says, God, I want you to rain down fire that these people would know that you, O Lord, are God and that they would turn their hearts back to you. We see this picture of Elijah as brave and heroic, seemingly not afraid of anything with total trust in God. And then we fast forward a chapter later and we find Elijah hiding in a cave. There seems to be such a huge contrast between the Elijah at Mount Carmel and the Elijah that we find at Mount Horeb. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did he get there? What happened? How did Elijah find himself in this place? 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 3, immediately before our main text today, says this, Ahab, who was the king at the time, tells his wife Jezebel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Kings 19, you'll see something very important. There's been an age-old debate on the way that this text has been translated, specifically in verse 3 when it says, and then he was afraid. And I've talked to you about how uh, our, our English words sometimes fall short of the original Hebrew text. And this would be one of those cases, in my opinion, because there's a footnote there that says, or he saw. Instead of Elijah running because he was afraid, it says, or he saw. And I think it's so significant because I don't think that Elijah was running out of terror at all. 
I think Elijah left because he saw that nothing was going to change. That Israel's hearts and Israel's leaders' hearts had gotten so hardened and gotten to such an ugly, desperate, sinful place that even though the Lord would send down fire, that their hearts would remain unchanged. Elijah saw the state of Israel and he knew that he had to experience God and seek God in a new and fresh way. The story of Ahab telling his wife Jezebel and her remaining unchanged kind of reminds me of my big fat Greek wedding. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Well, there's a woman and she's getting married and, and one of her friends says to her, she says, oh honey, yeah, you know, the, head is, uh, the man is the head of the household, but the woman's the neck and she'll make that head turn whatever way she wants. And if you're married, that's annoying laughter. And if you're not married, you'll know it soon. And so Elijah, very intentionally, it says in the text, he took a 40 days journey. He took a long, long time. It was very intentional. He didn't end up at this mountain by accident. Out of reach of Jezebel, out of reach of where she would have been given any sort of credit for his death to the very same place that Moses experienced God in a very significant way. This mountain where where Elijah went to seek God is the very same place where we know Moses encountered God face to face. And that's where this story picks up. There's a word that comes off of Elijah's lips all the time. If you read through 1 and 2 Kings, Elijah was a prophet, which means he was someone who brought God's word to people. And before he would give God's word to people, he would say, thus says the Lord, before whom I stand. I love that. Before he would deliver a message, he said, I've stood before the Lord and here's what he says. And so Elijah saw the state of Israel and he knew that he needed to stand before the Lord in a significant way. And that's where we enter into this story. And I'd like to offer you just two simple observations that I think are very relevant for us today. One, as we read through this text, I think Elijah shows and reminds me what godly sorrow looks like. I think Elijah shows us what godly sorrow looks like. This is what Elijah says when, he, when God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? This is what Elijah's response is. For the people of Israel have thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword and I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God, I'm here because I'm broken. Because, because it seems like I'm the only one that loves you anymore. They're throwing down your altars. They're worshiping other gods. All these people have turned their backs and I don't know what else to do. That's why I'm here, God, because I'm broken about it. He was broken over Israel's leadership. Wouldn't you think that if you were Jezebel and Ahab that you would have changed your tune after fire came down from the sky and consumed a sacrifice right in front of your face? Wouldn't you think that would be enough information for you to maybe want to rethink the way that you're living? And I think that's so important and relevant for us because we live in a culture, in a society. Our world thinks that if we can just get people the right information, right? If we can get the graphics a little bit sexier, or if we can get the message just a little bit sharper, or if we can make the production a little bit grander and get the right information into people's minds and hands that, that they're going to change their hearts and their minds. And it's easy for us to point our fingers at Ahab and Jezebel, but we do the exact same things. We know God's promises, and yet we choose to worship ourselves. We know our destructive habits and our relationships and our marriages, and yet we choose them over and over. We understand the consequences of our sin, and yet we flirt with it on a daily basis. Because here's the deal. You see, unless the gospel of Jesus Christ permeates people's hearts, 
unless we experience and encounter the one true God in a personal way, no amount of information will ever be enough to change someone's heart. And the same behavior that we engage in today is the same behavior that broke Elijah's heart and filled him with godly sorrow over Israel's leadership. I believe that uh, Elijah was broken over Israel's sin as a whole. Here, Elijah sees 450 prophets of other gods, and these are God's chosen people. These are the same people that he rescued out of slavery, that he provided for over and over, that he kept his promises towards. Elijah sees it, and and he realizes that, uh, that they have forgotten about God. And it burdened his heart. And you know, I became a believer about 10 years ago. And I had a, a pretty radical encounter with Jesus. I was that guy in the fraternity. I was big man on campus, whatever that would be. And, and, and it was literally this conversion moment for me. And in that moment, Jesus was so sweet to me. Jesus was my everything. And I, I remember specifically, literally losing sleep over men and women in my life, friends and family that didn't know Jesus. I would weep over their salvation. I would see the sin of my college campus and it would burden my heart. And I don't know if it's because I've been in ministry for 10 years and now this is my job, but if I'm honest with you, I think I've lost a piece of that. But I know I want it back. And I want it for you too. You know, such intensity and God-centeredness seems kind of strange to us. I have a friend named Jaron. He actually stood next to me in my wedding. It's one of my groomsmen. And and he literally loves Jesus so much that sometimes I find it annoying. (laughs) But after I get over myself, I'm convicted and I I want what Jaron has. Because Jesus permeates and infects every part of his life, his thoughts, the way that he spends his money, the way that he spends his relationships, the way that he uses his time. Jaron is jealous for Jesus. And so I wonder what it could look like for us to be full of godly sorrow for the church. What would need to change, you know, that, uh, for us to go without and pray as we give to our partners in Africa so that Zambia could have clean drinking water? What if that was what kept us up at night? What if we, we lost sleep over our partnership with North Minneapolis Young Life because kids will never experience Jesus in their home life? What if those were the things that burdened us? I think Elijah gives us a great glimpse and a reminder of what godly sorrow looks like. Second thing, I think in this text I see, uh, that I love, I see God's response and it reveals his character. God sees Elijah twice and asks him the same question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I love that he calls him by name. Doesn't it change the conversation when somebody calls you by your name? When they look in your face and they call you by their name and, and God says to Elijah twice, what are you doing here? And he calls him by name. There's this intimate, beautiful picture. And I want you to pay attention to how you hear that question. As you've read this text in the past, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, pay attention to how you read and hear that question because it tells you a lot about how you view God. How you hear and read and interpret that question tells you a lot about how you personally view and experience God. And our view of who God is directly reflects and affects how we relate to him. And inevitably, who we're showing the world he is. Let me say that again. Our view of who God is directly reflects how we relate to him. And inevitably, who we are showing the world he is. And that's a really big deal. Try this on. If you read this text and you hear that question, what are you doing here? And you hear an angry, shameful God asking you that question. Where does that come from? 
Or if you read that text and you hear a gracious, merciful God that, that, is, that is personal and intimate, where does that come from? You know, I think about how I hear this question and, and I do, I, I, I hear an intimate pursuer, patient, loving, kind, gracious, long-suffering. And I have to think back to my experience of God and so much of it resolves around the men and women that I experienced in church and the men and women that were in my life, my youth pastors, Tim and Jereen Block. And my parents that raised me up to know who Jesus is. And I hear this question and I, and I hear it like Lange as he writes in the book of Kings. It's a question of tender kindness. To relieve the full burdened heart of the prophet. That he to whom the great privilege of being able to complain of his sorrow had so long been denied. Might be moved to reveal his desire to pour out his whole heart before the Lord. Because here's the deal. Our experience of God is so closely related to the way that we experience church and the way that we've experienced our parents, and the way that we experience our friends. I talk about it in student ministries all the time, and it's not just true for student ministries, it's true for adults and student lay care and lay care ministries and missions, that, that, that we have the privilege to be Christ to people. And they will learn more, if they don't know Jesus, about who God is from the way that we treat them, and the way that they experience us, than anything we say. They will learn more about who God is by their experience with us and by what they experience when they walk in these doors and their experience growing up than anything that comes out of our mouths. People have always been God's plan A to restore a broken world. And so no matter how you've heard this question in the past, I believe that as parents or mentors and friends and members of this church, visitors, that we have a chance to be a part of restoration. I love as we read through this text that God's not found in all the showy stuff. He's not in the earthquake or the fire or the wind, but he's found in the gentle, still, small whisper. And so what does that mean for us? You know, so often I'm approached by young men and women or older men and women who are, who are going through a life change or they've just had a, some sort of a conversion time in their life. And they're looking for signs and they want flashy and they want big and they want miracles and they want God to, to talk to them and they want it written on the wall. And none of that stuff is, is wrong. None of that stuff is bad to want to hear from God in a significant way. But if that's all we seek, I think we're going to be disappointed. Because I think more often than not, Christ is found in the still small whisper. And sometimes we're not satisfied with that. But I think that biblical faith is content with the word. I think that biblical faith is content with just Jesus. Resting in God's promises and knowing his character. Elijah wasn't seeking a fire or an earthquake. He was seeking the Lord. And that's what he got. The word says that if we seek after him like hidden treasure, that we're going to find him. Jesus invites us to ask and to seek and to knock. And when we do, he says we're going to receive. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we seeking? Are we seeking an experience? Are we seeking an emotion? Or are we seeking the one true God? Are we seeking after Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior? You know, ironically, this isn't really a text about God speaking. But I will never forget a couple years ago, a good friend of mine, Steve Weens, many of you might know him. I was in the midst of a life transition and I had my charts and I had my lists and I had all the graphical information. And, and Steve looked at me and he said, well, that's all great, Lee. But what if God still speaks? Such a simple question that kind of knocked me off my chair. What if, what if God still speaks? 
And I don't know about you, but I get frustrated sometimes because I don't always hear so good. And it's easier for me to read my Bible or listen to a sermon than actually have to talk to God. And I love that Elijah was so intentional to take such a long journey to meet with the Lord. No wonder he heard from him. And if you're like me also, sometimes you leave here with the best intentions of processing for long times and getting up in the morning and, and journaling. But then the phone rings and emails come and the kids start crying and life happens. And that time is gone and we're here next Sunday before we know it. And so even just for a few minutes, we want to create some space in, in this room right now for you to just stand before the Lord. I'll have a few process questions for you up on the screen if you'd like to mow over those. Maybe now or some other time, write those down. But take this time to stand before the Lord, whatever that looks like for you.